0: Welcome back. I'm Liz Brunig to our low-quality podcast. This is my husband, Matt
1: Brunig. Hello, everyone.
0: Matt doesn't soak in pop culture at all. Uh, It's something like a superpower that he has. So we're doing a short series of podcasts here where I give him articles uh, about politics that are uh, told through the lens of pop culture and then have Matt kind of try to reverse engineer what those articles of pop culture are about. Last time we did Harry Potter. This time we're doing Batman uh, and it's a little special because I'm actually a big Batman fan. And uh, Matt has known me for many years, but has managed not to know anything about Batman, right?
1: Uh, I mean, I know some things from seeing stuff on TV and whatnot, but I don't know it too well.
0: And so I'm actually, I'm a fan of the comic books, and Matt, Matt doesn't read comics.
1: I've never read a comic book. Um, I, I don't know, understand why everyone all of a sudden say they read comic books growing up. I never knew anyone reading comic books growing up. Um, You knew me. Yeah, but I mean, even, you know, at more normal ages, 10 and 12 and that sort of thing, I didn't know anybody (laughs) who read comic books. And maybe that was because I was more into other things, but I just never, I never saw a comic book at school. What were you into? You know, I was into sports, I suppose, but, you know, I still knew a lot of people. I mean, sort of, I was around a lot of people visually. I could observe them and I didn't see had very many comic books floating around.
0: So even after all the time that we've been together, you've never read one of my Batman comics?
1: No, I don't. I, I, you know, I'm not really into the picture books. OK.
0: <laughs> so uh, tell me a little bit about Batman the character, uh, uh, which you have learned. Uh, I sent Matt a couple of articles about politics and Batman. It's hard to find much contemporaneous stuff that's not based on the films. So really, we're just dealing with what Matt has picked up through osmosis here. Uh, Who is Batman, Matt?
1: Batman is a billionaire crime fighter in New York City. He lives... uh, Well, I don't know if he lives, but he has a bat cave, and he has an apprentice, Robin, and there is a bat signal that is triggered by the local authorities when a crime is out of control and they need special assistance.
0: He doesn't live in the bat cave. He's not in New York City.
1: I thought he was in New York City. Yeah, it's Gotham. Well, but it says in the one uh, article you sent me that both Trump and Batman were born in Gotham, which obviously Trump was not born in Gotham. He was born in New York City, so I yeah. presume these are the same thing.
0: Yeah, that's true. So, so Batman's like a local god. He really only he, he's not a he's not here for the
1: world. Unlike Superman, who kind of uh, does go around the world.
0: Well, Superman's American. I mean, he, he's very attached to America. Batman is really about his his little city state of Gotham.
1: Yeah, most law enforcement is done on a municipal level.
0: So you're viewing, you view Batman as a a law enforcement ordinance, sort of something they can call upon.
1: Yeah, he's sort of the, if things get out of control, I wouldn't say he's an official part of the law enforcement authority, but they kind of, you know, there's a wink wink, you know, when they need help.
0: There's a relationship there. Yeah,
1: you know, it's uh, you allow things to happen sometimes that are unlawful, but the authorities are implicitly approving of them, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, especially when you're dealing with police, that seems often to be the case.
1: Police, yeah, I mean, you know, they allow jaywalking to go by, um, you know, they might. Murder. Go go soft on people who, yeah, who technically break the law. Um, that sort of thing.
0: Tell me about Batman's motives.
1: Batman, you know, he's he's anti crime. He's wants to clean up the city.
0: That's true. That's true. His motives. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'd say that's about right. Uh, do you know anything about Robin this is especially interesting because as a Batman fan I I specialize in Robin and I I still think it's I think you probably know less than the average person about Robin
1: Robin is an apprentice he's an intern he's (laughs) you know he's getting training so that he can be a superhero at some point maybe even take over Batman's you know Batman's gonna retire like everyone
0: that's very perceptive and that's that's uh that's very much rooted in the in a new run the new 52 uh which you wouldn't know. Uh, do you have any sense of how many Robins?
1: I assume there was just one, Robin.
0: You assume there was just one. That's his name. His name is just Robin, that's his first name.
1: That's right, like in Winnie the Pooh.
0: Like Christopher Robin, that was his last name.
1: Nonetheless. Okay.
0: <laughs> so Robin is not, not his first name. There are several of them. Actually, because they grow up and they move on. One of them dies.
1: Well, it's, it's, I would give them different names. If, you, I mean, you would give them different names. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's like a job title. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's a job title. It's a role.
1: It makes sense, I suppose. Yeah.
0: You know, and you, you don't even use your actual name out there because you're a mask vigilante, so you can't just, you know, I'm Matt.
1: That's true. Yeah. I guess if you need to communicate.
0: Do you have a sense of, of who the city thinks Batman is?
1: You know, he's just a good guy. He's a crime fighter. He cares about... Keeping this, keeping the streets clean. No, oh, but I
0: mean, he has a secret identity, right? Obviously, Batman is not known as the persona.
1: I mean, people life. must know he's a real person, but he's—they don't know who he is, who and they he is don't in really. Life. Yeah, it, they don't really care, probably. You don't think they really care? <laughs>
0: who, who cares?
1: This guy? Well, I mean, I know police officers have real lives and I don't really care what they are I mean more (laughs) than anyone else well
0: but this is a very special guy this is a guy you know does feats that seem almost superhuman and
1: yeah okay I mean there might be some curiosity then I I guess that makes sense do
0: you have a sense of where he gets his money
1: you know he's a business person he's a business person they said like uh, in the article I read that um you know both titans of finance. So he's a titan of finance.
0: He's a titan of finance. He he's the CEO of a conglomerate called Wayne Enterprises. All
1: right. I wouldn't that's not really a finance position. I wouldn't say, but you know, this author may not be as familiar with the, you know, intricacies of top-level management versus a financier.
0: <laughs> that's uh, something a little bit confusing about Batman is that he he he's inherited this company but his dad is also a practicing physician which is something that you don't see very often I mean I guess it could happen
1: his dad's a doctor and he owns this business yeah yeah that's strange you know, they also say Trump's a titan of finance I guess now that I think about it and he's not a titan of finance either so yeah yeah, that is odd. I assume that was probably just a mistake in the books. They just didn't keep it straight. Why would? How could you be a doctor and run a company?
0: Well, they, you know, these these things are written by hundreds of different writers over time. They're like stories of gods, you know, in in mythology. You have Hercules, and you have the general thrust of his narrative, but lots of different stories that originate from different people. So you get some uh, some conflicting stuff that is not possible to square or hard to square and. You, know, you just pick and choose what you like, basically. But there was, uh, there was something uh, about Batman's business, as we were discussing uh, the other night, that, uh, that got you thinking about concentration, economic concentration, which is what you really wanted to talk about and why you agreed to talk about Batman.
1: Yeah, well, I suppose if it's a conglomerate, then um, there is a concentrated aspect to it. Conglomerates are kind of tricky. I don't even actually know how how, you, how to think about them in terms of concentration, because they have they're in all sorts of markets. Then they may not be a monopolistic player in any of the markets they're in. They just happen to have a bunch of little sub companies. You know, like I might have forty different companies that provide forty different products, and each of them only be you know two or three percent of each market. There's no real concentration going on. Uh, in any meaningful way, it's just I've got this holding company for, for whatever reason that owns a bunch of totally normal, non-monopolistic businesses. Um, but that does get mixed up a little bit in the uh, in the concentration uh, discussions, I suppose.
0: So there's been a real resurgence of interest in concentration monopoly among progressives recently, um, which has resulted in a lot of um, sort of long, drawn-out Twitter arguments. Uh, between yourself and and various other users, uh, so so what is your view on the rise of anti-concentration, anti-monopoly thought on the left at the moment?
1: Uh, well, so I, I don't know about um, my view per se. Um, I think I'm more interested in you know situating the figuring out what it's all about. You know what are what are people you know criticizing what. What are their philosophical viewpoints and that kind of thing? Because this does come not totally out of nowhere, but it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a, you know, sort of popped onto the radar in the last few years. Um, so I've spent a lot of time reading and listening to podcasts of, of various folks and and tr- tried to piece together as best as I can a sense of like, you know, where where are these people coming from? What is the what are the you know philosophical forerunners of this uh type of thought and that sort of thing and i think i've got a pretty good a good handle on it at this point
0: what are the philosophical antecedents of anti-monopoly stuff
1: yeah so the first one i would say uh, there's a big emphasis on jefferson and thomas jefferson that is and i i frankly i think it's a little bit misplaced Uh, So, you know, Thomas Jefferson, he had this notion of, you know, the yeoman farmer and, you know, Jeffersonian democracy and that sort of thing. And, you know, the yeoman farmer is is more or less a subsistence farmer. And so they're kind of like, I guess, a small business person in a way, or at least that seems to be the analog that uh, people who are looking to Jefferson uh, uh, see in the yeoman farmer. But if you actually read Jefferson, I mean, he is a little bit all over the place, like anyone you know who's written a lot of stuff usually is, especially someone who's you know a statesman is is not necessarily trying to lay out a comprehensive doctrine. What he actually seems to dislike is the wage relation of industrial capitalism. Yeah. So he talks about. Um, He has this quote, for instance, he says, uh, I know no condition happier than that of a Virginia farmer. His estate supplies a good table, clothes himself and his family with their ordinary apparel, furnishes a small surplus to buy salt, sugar, coffee and little finery for his wife and daughters. I mean, he's talking about someone who can subsist on their land. That does sound nice. It sounds all right I suppose and like but but that's sort of Jefferson that's my read on Jefferson he says this is a very novel country we have so much land per capita that each person can run a kind of inefficient little freehold and and subsist on it and so they don't have to depend on others they will still of course enter into transactions but those transactions will be in excess of subsistence They can feed themselves and clothe themselves out of their own production. And then they can go into the market and get, like they say, coffee and sugar and that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, and so it excludes them from being dominated by the wage relation.
1: Right. That is the key. And he is essentially anti-industrialization because the way industrialization works, of course, is people come off the farms into the cities, work in the factories. They don't subsist. They're paid a wage, et cetera, et cetera. And so it is, a, it, is a, um, it is a pro-agriculture kind of perspective, which then makes it very strange when it's like, well, how do I apply Jefferson's view that everyone should be farmers because the wage relation is inherently uh, exploitative and dominating? How do I apply that to a post-industrial service economy where 1% of people work on farms? Right, I, know. Right. I mean, there's no what I mean. I have no idea what Jefferson would say here because we're so far beyond.
0: Well, and it, it it presents a problem because agriculture is unlike other forms of industry, right? So if you're, if you want to look at a sort of traditional distributist viewpoint, for example, which would be the sort of, the uh, Catholic way, uh, you know, church-approved way of thinking about economics, you would have something like everybody owns the capital necessary for their own upkeep. You own your own tools. Or you own your own land. But agriculture, as you're pointing out here, it has the it has the ability to support you in a way that if I just own my own plumbing tools or my own paintbrushes or something, then I couldn't actually support myself.
1: Yeah, I would say distributism, which also has had a long um, interaction with antitrust, apparently. Sure, I've read yeah, of course. Um, that is sort of the next stage of development. So like the Jeffersonian view is not only do you own your own means of production in the sense that you own your land, but you also can consume everything you produce. The consumption is the key, right? right? So I don't, I literally don't need anyone because I don't, I neither need a labor market nor a consumer market or product market, whatever you want to call it. I don't need either of those. Right. The distributist move says, okay, yeah, we're going to have a product market, mm-hmm. but each Player is but we're not going to have a labor market more or less, right? right? So I'll own my own little Self-employed, you know little company and I might be a plumber I might be a candlestick maker or whatever, but I have my own tools and so that still avoids the wage relation Mm -hmm. and it avoids the you know concentration of capital and people being sort of I don't know exploited by that concentration uh, but it opens itself up to the consumer market. It opens itself up to the fact that I'm not producing everything I need to, to, to live. Right. I'm producing for a market in the hopes that I get enough back that I can go back into that market and get what I need to live.
0: And so a lot of these, uh, a lot of the, both the Jeffersonian ideal, the distributors ideal, they just sort of seem to resemble uh, the structure of economies prior to the rise of industrial capitalism. They're just trying to preserve some of those qualities you know after the after the advent of industrial capitalism
1: yeah i would say yeah they're they're, that's exactly right they're they're worried about wage relation they're worried about capital accumulation they're worried about those sorts of things they're worried about markets in a very straightforward sense the point at which Um, markets
0: started to intervene hugely into people's lives i mean
1: right being dependent on the market entirely as opposed to I depend on myself and subsist on what I produce myself. But then there's also this extra market on top of it where I buy things like sugar and coffee, which I don't really need, but are nice. Like that next step, that's the one that scares a lot of people. That's the one where Marx gets going and is like, oh my God, this is going to be, you know, we're recreating feudalism, etc., etc." That is inherent in industrial capitalism, not inherent in some companies being big or not. It's the nature of what kind of production is being done and who owns the production, not the size of the firms. Right. And so
0: so to make the distinction clear, you would have what the dislocation effect of capital. You'd have people moving around, uh, leaving their place of birth or whatever to, to move into markets where there are availabilities for them. Uh, even if you had a sort of Jeffersonian or a or a, you know, a small business model. So I mean you can't you can't have ten plumbers in one small town. Right? So if that's what you're apprenticed in and that's what you're doing, you're going to have people leaving the areas where they're born, right? I mean that was one of the concerns of distributism is that capitalism dislocates.
1: Yes, yes. That's not I don't think a specific concern of the concentration types, though I guess in a way they do talk about regional right, inequality right. and that sort of thing, which right. supposes people don't move. Um guess
0: what I'm trying to elucidate you get you to explain is, you know, what are the big differences uh, between a critique of you know, Jeffersonian critique of concentration or the size of firms, which is market concentration. And then a a critique of capitalism.
1: Yeah. So I think one way to look at it is, um, you know, when we're thinking about on the wage side or the labor side, I should say, what you get from a lot of the anti-concentration types on the labor side is this idea that. The way that we're going to have freedom is there will be lots of employers mm-hmm. and so for in, in that way we've we've preserved freedom because you can choose your employer or move on to an employer and it is the ability to move between employers that will keep wages up and ensure that you're not abused and that sort of thing there's a freedom inherent in that sort of movement whereas the Capitalist critic which I would include Jefferson and the distributivists in this would say that's just choosing your master Yeah. Right. So there's been a lot of adoption, I would say, um, uh, by a lot of sort of anti-concentration types of this master language, you know, because the the consolidated corporation is the master. They control the market. They control whether you can get on the market and become as a new business person. They control blah, 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 the workers in the market, etc. And so they're the master. And that the capitalist critique goes one step further and says they're all masters. If we if we all have to sell our labor to 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 live, then you know maybe it's relatively better to have m- multiple people that you can sell it to. But ultimately, that's that doesn't free you from the master servant relation. It just gives you more choice of master.
0: So the antitrust sort of Jeffersonian critic says it's the level of power or the fairness by which the firm exerts power that you know is the object of their critique and then for the anti-capitalist it's that relationship whatsoever
1: yeah that's a great way to put it i think yeah a dissipation of master power versus an elimination of master power or an overcoming of master power through you know alternative Means such as democratic control or that sort of thing, where, you know, that, that I think is where the, where the socialist moves when they're not trying to just like reactionarily go backwards, you know, into more simpler agricultural hunter-gathering style that says, no, we want to go forward and overcome this. They tend to move then into, well, we need to collectively control and own, you know, businesses and companies and that sort of thing. Um, and then the anti-concentration types say, "No, we just need the power that exists in businesses to be dissipated among many businesses, and that'll really that'll kind of get it get the job done."
0: It'll create a situation where businesses uh, compete with one another for labor and and so on and so forth, right? I mean, isn't that the idea?
1: Yeah, that there, that's the idea on the labor side, and then you know. There's also an idea on the kind of like small business person side. That seems to actually be where a lot of the emphasis is. It's not so much that workers can move between firms more easily when there are more firms. It's also that the number of people who are owner operators, who are self-employed, who are sole proprietors, those people who are their own boss, that number goes up. And, like, obviously, it necessarily does if you multiply the number of firms. But the relevant question, I would say, from a more left-wing perspective, is how high does it go? It goes from, you know, 10% of people in the labor market are self-employed or, you know, owner-operator type bosses to, you know, at best, 15%, 20%. It's still a vast majority of people are having to line up and get a wage, you know.
0: We all own our own bodegas and we just trade amongst them for what we need.
1: Yeah, we could. You know, <laughs> what's funny is, I mean, I, I'm more partial to the view that firm size is dependent upon the um, sort of technology of the period and what it requires of production. And that's a, a somewhat like <laughs> over materialistic perspective, perhaps. But like, obviously, you can't produce cars efficiently. In like a garage it's just not you know this is not gonna happen so when we're in the stage where we're producing a lot of cars we're gonna get these big factories with really large workforces and that sort of thing and as we move beyond that in our own country and we've kind of manufacturing has shifted elsewhere and become much more um, automated and that sort of thing we are moving into a more service sector Uh, we've already moved in that direction and arguably a service sector might actually be somewhat more amenable to you know just kind of solo people out there in the world working without a specific boss and i would say in fact that's basically what the gig economy is i mean the platforms that you do your work on maybe have too much power and that sort of thing but fundamentally you're setting your own hours you're getting paid by the person that rides your car or whose house you clean And that is enabled by the fact that service work is not capital intensive. The technologies don't require a big firm, per se, to work. So we might be able to move in that direction, though people have not been very happy with gig work. (laughs) They say, this sucks. I'm dependent on whatever the consumer market is at any given time. I'd much rather have a stable wage like I used to have. That gave me security and knowledge about what my uh, budgets look like.
0: So it seems like basically the antitrust or Jeffersonian approach that we've been talking about, you could place it on the right or the left, essentially. That it, it has a you can see a libertarian type approach to it, which is about maximizing maximizing excuse me freedom. But you can also see a left wing approach It says, oh yeah, well, we we do anti concentration stuff uh, because of the power that extremely large firms are able to wield. But we also do. Welfare and and other programs like that. What where do you see it falling out at the moment sort of to the right to the left? To the center.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean it is one of those kind of interesting yeah, Transcendent things because on the one hand, you know People like Hayek will tell you that if the market is going to work. It's magic There have to be enough buyers and sellers and that sort of thing uh, You know in a froth of transactions to actually produce The important allocation information to produce innovations and that sort of thing and that has been a more, you know, traditionally fairly kind of conservative. I don't, you know, Hayek's, you know, pretty, you know, notably kind of conservative guy. Uh, But then, of course, as you move more towards the center-left, the the focus is uh, on, you know, uh, undercutting corporate power, these big corporate behemoths. They not only exercise power in the markets, but presumably exercise outside power in politics. If we just just cut them down, then then each given firm will have less strength. And that's important for a kind of uh, progressive politics and that sort of thing. So you know, there's a a, a, a nice marriage there potentially between a kind of center left and center right um, agenda.
0: Do you think there's a place in the kind of left politics that you prefer for antitrust? At least on the level of uh, political influence.
1: I think it's there. I mean, it's it's one of those things where, you know You have your ideal society and your ideal society. You may not even care all that much about Particular things, but we don't live in an ideal world And so sometimes you have to think about well, what's the second best or third best or fourth best or whatever? and so I think you can make the case that well, you know a kind of fourth fifth best, you know approach is Let's thin out the size of companies and then that'll you know improve the bargaining positions of various people and and Maybe reduce the political strength and that sort of thing. I mean, I could see that playing out I would say broadly speaking, you know from my perspective Firm size is not it's just something. I don't care all that much about if you can make the case you know that well, empirically we know if the firms were a little bit smaller or something like that, there will be big benefits from it. then okay, let's do it. But it's not a principled position, you know what I mean? If you could also prove that having really big companies was going to be good for things that I care about, then I'd also be fine with that. you know um, And finally, you know one of the one of the the figures that that this sort of grouping has, um, um started to kind of orient themselves around uh, after kind of shifting away from Jefferson is brandeis and 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 when Brandeis writes about monopoly and company size, he actually does say things like uh you know uh it's not always true, of course, that as a company gets bigger, it gets more efficient. It's generally true as a company gets bigger, it gets more efficient, but all companies are gonna reach a tipping point where more size makes them less efficient. And that tipping point might differ from market to market, but you know there is some line that has to be drawn that you, you would try to suss out kind of situationally and that sort of thing. Um, but that means sort of, again, This figure is not like fundamentally pro small business in the way that a lot of advocates are. He's just, you know, pro keeping things, you know, at a nice medium, uh, you know, Goldilocks uh, spot.
0: Something that you bring up is important in that people reason about their politics in an interesting way. And one way that people reason about their politics is they imagine the world they'd like to see. And then they think about what kind of processes would have to take place within society as we know it to get us to the world we'd like to see. And so for some people, clearly small businesses, they have an emotional place for them. They they mean Main Street, they mean mom and pop shops, they mean close knit communities, they mean people with, you know, control over their lives, you know, the the small businessmen in, in, in the American imagination is this kind of middle American everyday guy figure who's like a pillar in his community and uh, is Supporting his family and getting along um, And what's interesting about you is as far as I've been able you know, to tell in our conversations your ideal society is kind of a Little bit harder to to, to put one's finger on you. You love 7 and Amazon You say that you would like to never leave the house if possible and have everything delivered um, What would your ideal society look like?
1: Well, it's true. I don't share the aesthetic, uh, um, you know, to the extent that, that the kind of anti-concentration, sort of pro-small business side has an aesthetic component, which I think it does if we're being honest. I don't share that aesthetic attachment to, to like, anything. Well, uh, you know, when I look at a, so I'll give you an example. I was watching TV the other day, and, and I was watching one of those, you know, how it's made shows. I know you watch those. <clears throat> they're fantastic. Yeah, they no they're great they're really bad they're really good so So boring no it was a show about a Marie Callender's factory (laughs) and they were showing how this factory produced 20,000 pies a day oh my 20,000 pies and then I'm like this is so much better than a little bakery that maybe could do 20 (laughs) pies a day it's a thousand more times pies. Look how many more pies you get. So much more pies. That is a much more interesting thing. And there's a, there, it's a very, it's a very therapeutic thing. You see them go through their big vats and they go down their little, you know, conveyor belts. And I find that much more interesting. It's a very kind of like, yeah, you know, we've conquered the world industrially and we can just produce pies at so will. So you
0: don't want to see a little lady like rolling out a
1: crust? No, why? <laughs> we have machines that can make pies. That is my preference. I understand other people do not share in that and I'm, I don't try to like beat people over the head with it, but if we're, that's just my view. I like these big, you know, production facilities that put out, so really, it's just impressive. If, if the
0: world. If the world were like you wanted it, you could just watch all kinds of factories all day, do interesting things.
1: Not exclusively that, but one channel dedicated to, you know, going to production facilities and showing you how stuff's made. I mean, uh, that's, you know, there are a lot of shows like that. I'm not the only one who obviously finds that interesting. What's
0: your favorite so. one you've ever watched on how it's
1: made? Um, Oh, that's a great question. Um... You know, I don't know. I don't really have a preference, I guess, per se. You know, they're all good. Um, They're all good, really. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I wish I had a better answer to that, but...
0: And you watched a series, if I recall correctly, on how things are transported?
1: There was a great series on PBS, which was led by one of the winners of Survivor. (laughs) <laughs> Which is, sorry, it's own kind of, yeah. I don't yeah. really know. He was a great presenter, though. I mean, as strange as it is that he I mean, went from one to the other. And, and his whole thing, yeah, he just was like, let me do the big systems of America. Mm-hmm. How does transportation work? And it's like, it's the greatest, like, aggregate level. We have this big country, and they use these big maps of the country, and they're like, all right, we got 330 million people. They got to get to where they're going today. How do they do it? Let's look at the school buses. Let's look at the traffics. Let's look at the trains. Let's look at how they all get around. And But from an aggregate perspective, not just like, here's one guy and his commute. But like, let's look at it all and see how these systems go. And then they had the same thing for food and like, you know how does how all do you the get f- all
0: those pies everywhere?
1: Yeah, no, they did. They had a Domino. They had a Domino's little thing, and they're like, let's track the Domino supply chain. And they would come. You know, here are the farms, and the farms come in, and then they had all these maps with all these lines and everything, like boom, 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 and then it gets delivered to your house with a bike in New York City or whatever. And yeah, I think that's those big systems are much more interesting to me than like a little production, you know, a farmer's market or something like that
0: you also uh, so, so so in your ideal society I and mean, you hate sitting in restaurants would uh, i mean would every restaurant just be a 711 would it would they all be restaurant.jpg? as you no say?
1: well i don't mind you know you have to think of things as recreational experiences and that i view is a little bit different that right that is different <laughs> yeah right so people have different recreational um, things that they like to do and those are not meant to be productive you know, okay. like, I go on long walks, and that's not productive. I could go in a car and get much further. That's true. Um, but I, yeah, but that's calming, and I like doing it. And so I understand that in the context of a restaurant. I don't personally like restaurants. I don't like being waited on. I find that a little odd. Um, but other people who like it, that's fine. I'm sure that'll continue to be a popular recreational activity. Um, you know, but that's not related to food production per se. It's mostly related to... It's, you know, that's it's not the reason you go. It's right? entertainment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's how you have to view it. And experiences in entertainment and recreation are not meant to be efficient.
0: When you think about your ideal society, do you think about sort of what the topography of the place would look like? Like a small town with a main street? Or do you imagine like big towers? Or does your brain not have pictures in it, just numbers? The
1: housing question is an interesting oh, it's one. It's not the
0: housing question. It's about the topography. What does it look like?
1: Topography. I Do mean, it? it's going to be buildings, right?
0: <laughs> but what does it look like? Is it, is it a warm... It's a
1: diversity of, of places you can live. You can live in these big tower clay, you know, clad is it, areas. Is it like and... a
0: warm little town with little blocks and maple trees and a couple of churches? and little neighborhood streets, or is there literally nothing like that in your mind? There's just there's just efficient ways of running things. No, I mean,
1: for other people, you know, there's, you know, what would I like to do mostly? You know, I probably would like to live out in a rural place, you know, mostly by myself, which is weird, because that's not an efficient way to live, per se.
0: That's why it's weird.
1: Well, <laughs> weird relative to my other views, yeah, but I also am yeah, yeah. fine, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. With the internet, every place is pretty much the same for me at this okay. point because I'm just online all the time, so okay. it doesn't really matter <laughs> okay. as long as there's Wi-Fi. And a 7-Eleven. And a 7 You know, I mean, I like 7-Eleven. I think it's a good establishment, but fundamentally, <laughs> the stuff in a 7-Eleven you can get at other places as well. It's just I like the standard, you know, presentation of them. They do have some, you know, unique offerings, but, you know, I just it's nice, it's clean, you know. Very standard. You know what you're gonna get, that sort of thing. I, I prefer that over. I'm in this new store, and this I have no idea what's on what shelf. Some of the, I've had, been to some of these non-standard stores, and it's, you know, I'll get a candy, and it's God, it must be like five months old, and it's gross, yeah. and you know, it's just the quality control's not there. Whereas a big system with 7-Eleven, I think you know the quality controls is probably better.
0: What is your favorite unique offering from 7 Eleven?
1: Um, you know, I've been eating the chicken sandwiches a lot recently. You can get a chicken, uh, chicken on biscuit for 99 cents. <laughs> and, you know, I bring it home and I put some, you know, it's kind of dry by itself. So you might want to put some mustard or, you know, some other condiment on it. 99 cents is a great deal for a chicken and biscuit um, sort of setup. Um, And then they also have like a chicken sandwich, which is on a more conventional bun. And, you know, chipotle mayo. So it comes with the condiment, which is, you know, if you're not able to bring it home, is a really big, big, important aspect of it. Um, That sort of stuff. I kind of, I usually would go for a hot dog, but hot dogs are kind of an ordeal because you got to get the employee to get the thing and put it on the bun. You have to talk to somebody. Yeah. And then you have to go to the little... Condiment stand and are they looking at you wondering what you're doing.
0: Why would they be wondering what you're doing? You're putting condiments on. I know, dog. but
1: how much condiments? Is this guy taking all our condiments? No, like, I'm
0: thinking that.
1: <laughs> they might be wondering, like, how does he fix his dog? Let's see how <laughs> it's going. But with the, if you just get one of the chicken sandwiches, pull it out the little hot, the little hot box and you're good to go. I'm
0: just, I want listeners to know no one is watching you. No one's checking out how you fix your dog no one's thinking thoughts about you while you're making your hot dog. I think that's what the condiment station's for. and,
1: and It is what it's for, and, you know, but there's a lot more activity. you just not just grab and go. Yeah, it's kind of like you're there for a little bit and, like, it's, you know, you're there longer than you'd like to be, I feel like.
0: As a closing question, uh, your favorite Slurpee?
1: Lemonade is the best, I think. You know, I know that's kind of weird because it's not, you know... Slurpee, you just, you know, lemonade. It's like that's just frozen a kind of,
0: lemonade, but that's a good treat. No,
1: it's a great treat, and but it's yeah, it's a little bit, you know, you would think like, well, what about you know, blue? All you know, they have all these electric yeah. kind of weird flavors and that sort of thing, and those are fine as well. But yeah, I mean, lemonade's a it's a great. I like lemon. I like uh, sort of soury uh, type of uh, type flavors. So,
0: have you noticed that our daughter has a favorite Slurpee, or does she like them all at this point?
1: I've only really given her some of the red Slurpee, the cherry, the wild cherry. Um, I'm sure she would be fine with all of them. I haven't really given her too much Slurpee, only if I've had one and she wanted some, I will, you know, use the little spoon straw.
0: She didn't like the lime popsicles, so maybe she wouldn't like the lemonade.
1: Maybe not. That would make sense. Um,
0: It would just depend on how powerful. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so.
0: That's it. That's all your thoughts on on our daughter and treats.
1: Yeah, I mean, she likes treats. You know, all children like treats. You just got to be careful and not give them too much.
0: Thank you for that insight. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Next time, we'll see if I can get Matt to talk about some other pop culture item by agreeing to let him talk about what he actually wants to talk about again. Uh, And we'll check in with you then. Thanks very much.